the end of the day, you wanted to be in the room where it happened. And the room where it happened was where Marshall Mason was, and where, where Lanford Wilson was, and where Terrence McNally was. I'm Eric Ostro, and this is Live at the Lortel, a podcast all about off-Broadway theater. Each week, we give our listeners unique access to theater makers currently working off-Broadway. Please visit our website, liveatthelortel.com, where you can find a list of upcoming guests and reserve tickets for our live recordings. All tickets are free. At the end of each podcast, we provide an opportunity for our audience to ask questions. If you can't make a recording, you can submit a question via Twitter. Just tell us your question and who it's for, using the hashtag AskLiveAtTheLortel. We will try our best to get your question on the show. I'm so happy that John Benjamin Hickey agreed to do this today. Uh, So without further ado, let's welcome John Benjamin Hickey. Hi, everyone. This is a nice crowd for a snow day. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for coming. I'm so happy to be here. It's such an honor to have you. A thrill to be here. And it's five blocks from where I live, too. Yeah, very very (laughs) easy for you. So we always start our podcast usually at the same place. We always start with what you're currently working on, which is The Inheritance. Yes, The Inheritance. By Matthew Lopez. Yes, yes. um, Which is playing at the Ethel Barrymore Theater. Yep, 47th Street. (laughs) Talk about it, how the play came to you. Well, The Inheritance is a uh, two-part, six-hour play about the young generation of gay men in New York in their late 20s, early 30s, and how they sort of collide with the older generation of gay men who live in New York, who lived, of course, through the epidemic, and what they kind of give to each other as generationally and as a community. So this play, of course, speaks to me. And uh, two years ago, yeah, almost two years ago exactly to this date, I was binge-watching the first season of The Crown on Netflix, which was, of course, uh, directed and executive produced by Stephen Daldry. And I was about to go somewhere and do a very, not very good TV show for money. And I really, this is the truth, I was thinking, God, I wish I could work with Stephen Daldry, man. That's all I want to do is just work with Stephen Daldry. And within a day or two after thinking that, or sometime around that, I got an email from Tom Curtihy, the producer, saying, Stephen Daldry wants you to come to London and do this play at the Young Vic. And I said yes before I even read the play. I had heard about the play because one hears about exciting new things like this. It was sort of in the air. I said yes immediately and then of course I read it and I was just undone by the play and I felt like it was just this great gift that had been given to me, given where I was in my life and who I was as an actor. And so I I jumped on board and that was January of 2018. We started at the Young Vic and then it moved to the West End and played there for four months at the Noel Coward and then made its way to New York, made its way home, because it's a New York play. It's a play yeah. about New York. How did the Londoners take to the so many New York references in, yeah. in the play? It's an extraordinary difference between having done it in London and doing it here. And there are so many different things you could talk about in the differences, but. In some ways, it almost played like a fable in London. And that's not to say that the London experience is not foreign to the New York experience. God knows that London went through the crisis like New York did in its own way. (laughs) Not, you know, in that there's a young generation of gay men there connecting and falling in love and getting their hearts broken. So all of the, the emotionality of the play played, but when you are talking about real estate in the play as much as we do. And, you know, there, for instance, there's a great moment where I get somebody, I, I play a billionaire, and I get this young man an apartment, and I say, it comes with a key. And he says, well, I would hope so. And I say, no, numbskull, a key to the park. Well, nobody in London knew what that meant. And here, the minute I say that, the second I say it, they're five lines ahead of us. So Matthew had to readjust a few things just to because it was so much clearer here, just the geography, the topography of the play. On a bigger level, and I don't want to diminish the London experience because the audiences there just embraced it so wholly, it hits you 
in a different part of your solar plexus in your heart here because it is about us. It's about, it's a story about New York City. You feel everything, I think, even more strongly here. So the play is loosely based on E.M. Forster's uh, Howard's End. End. Yeah. There's so many references and goes back and forth. And I believe your character, Henry Wilcox, is the only real kind yes. of name that, that he uses. Yeah. And you play this Republican yeah. billionaire. Right. Yeah, that's another great example of the difference. When I'm revealed as a Republican, when I was revealed as a Republican in London, the entire audience goes, ooh. <laughs> Here, it just goes dead quiet. I mean, people, you, 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 the only sound you hear are people leaning back and folding their arms. <laughs> um, and so it's a really terrific challenge to, oh God, humanize a gay billionaire Republican. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a wonderful challenge. But yes, Henry Wilcox is the only character in the play who is a direct name from a character in the book. But all of the lead characters in the play are based on characters in Forrester's Howard's End. This young guy, I, I, probably 40, or I'm not really sure how old he is, but it, he incredibly captured the uh, beauty of, of Howard's End. Yeah. And how, I mean, I don't want Matthew, to ruin it. Matthew, you mean Matthew, Matthew Lopez, yes. How he um, weaves the story in and out. Yeah. And it's two parts. I mean, it's three and a half hours yeah. each part, but it, it flies by. Flies by. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a great soap opera. I mean, that's one of the, Matthew's great gifts. Matthew had a play that played at this very theater, the Lucille Lortel called The Ballad of Georgia McBride. Yeah. I fell in love with that play. I thought it was such Brilliant a great, play, yes. old-fashioned entertainment, the likes of which we don't see much of anymore. And one of the amazing things about this, The Inheritance, is as profoundly, gut-wrenchingly, heart-shattering as it is, it is really funny. And just flies by like a telenovela. I mean, the audience gasps and laughs and... And we're in it. I mean, the characters, some of them kind of jump off the stage and we're like, uh, I was happily, they were sitting right here on the edge of my seat. I mean, I know... My character doesn't do that. My character doesn't doesn't jump off the stage. Sadly, I I leave that to the youngsters. Oh, no, I think the right ones are getting in your lap. (laughs) (laughs) Depends what you like. I guess so. so. But uh, my friend Lou and I, who's who's right here, um, we, for the part two, we were sitting in, in the second row, and you made that great joke. Say it now. The one about uh, I could see your, your so dental many. work. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't want to. I mean, I, Bette Midler's performance in Hello Dolly is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. I had friends in the second row at opening night, and I said, "How was it?" It's like, well, we could see her dental work, <laughs> and you could see mine too. Yeah, that's very close. You have very a good close. dentist. By <laughs> the way. It's really, very, very much. Very good. I pay good but they they make us part of yeah. the experience. Yeah. I mean, they're down there. They're kind of interacting with us a, a little bit. Yeah that in the right moments where we're all having a really good time and yeah. we feel very much part of the experience. Yeah, it, it, that's Daldry made it, really did kind of literally put it in your lap. There's nothing remote about the staging. There's no set, there's no furniture. There's just a, a rake of a platform that just sort of sets the actors in the audience's figurative lap and literal sometimes and, and it makes playing it so much fun. Yeah, everybody seems to be having an incredible yeah. good time. I'm interested, you you came to New York around the time, uh, we, we both did. Yeah, 83, August of 83. There was a, a, certainly a stigma for young gay men coming to New York at that time. And I know you're from Texas, yeah. so I know you left school and, and you came here. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience yeah. in the early 80s coming to New yeah. York and, well, and what... Yeah, but that black cloud that hung yeah. over us. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I uh, certainly in retrospect, I completely knew I was gay, but wasn't dealing with it really on any level. And I came to New York. I followed the great actress Julie White, who was my friend at Southwest Texas State University, left school because she wanted to make a name for herself in New York City, and she went to a Fordham University. I'd never heard of Fordham University. And I wanted people to talk about me the way they talked about Julie at our school. So I, I just followed her to Fordham. The next year, I showed up at Fordham University, where Lou Liberatore had been. Also, in retrospect, hindsight is so 2020. I don't think I came to seek my fame and fortune. There's a line in our play, I came to seek my dignity. I think I came to become the 
person I wanted to become. I think I was smart enough not to despise my nature, but my circumstances. I had a wonderful family and grew up outside of Dallas, and they're still there, and I love them very much. And, and I love Texas. After all these years, I learned to love Texas again. But I came with, a, with knowledge. AIDS had been on the cover of Time magazine, along with Madonna, so I came knowing the two most important things I needed to know about. And I remember also there was a Dan Rather, CBS Evening News, I saw this when I was in college. There was a segment he did on these towers in uh, New York on 42nd, 43rd Street called Manhattan Plaza. And it's where a bunch of artists lived. And there was like a you know, seven or eight year long waiting list. This was a segment, I remember this vividly. And the waiting list had vanished, had disappeared because so many people in the building had died. I learned so much about New York in that segment because on the good side, my God, there is a building where artists live and with subsidized, you can, you can go to New York and find that. And then of course the other part of it was this terrible calamity that was happening. So, you know, I'm so fortunate that I got here when I got here because if the people 10 years older than I was were the people who were uh, on the front lines in every way imaginable. And my character in the play comes right around the same time I did mm -hmm. and is completely paralyzed, as so many people were, by the tragedy and could not deal with it and suffers the rest of his life from a, a very severe PTSD. There were, there were two people that were, two kinds of people that were dealing with it. You were either in the front lines, you were, you were helping, you were, or you, you know, unfortunately uh, people were very sick, or you were the people that completely, not necessarily turned their back on it, but you just didn't, yeah. You didn't want to see it, which right. cuts, and Henry is Henry in was one of those people, yeah. And he is cut off completely emotionally. He's just, yep. he's, I wouldn't say dead inside, but he is, he doesn't want to deal with any emotions yeah. Yeah. at all. And you know, there's the, my partner is uh, 10 years older than I am, lost basically, you know, most of his friends. And, and we talked so much about this. There are the people who could show up, we've talked about this too, Lou, the people who showed up and the people who didn't. And you always remember both if you, you know, survived. I've thought about that so much because I think not only does Henry live with the fact that he couldn't deal with it, he also lives with the fact that the man he loves most in the world, his partner, knows what an ignominious retreat he made. So you're dealing with two levels of grief, grief attached to what happened and grief with how you uh, ran away. That's what causes him such profound heartbreak in the play. And I think Matthew, who did not go through it, you know, 37, 38 years old, yeah. writes so eloquently and so in such a complex way about a person like this, because they're there. Yeah, not only your character, but he writes all these characters so beautifully without living in that time. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much research you can do about what was happening at the time. I mean, most of us, we live through it, so yeah. we know it. I'm not a writer, I, I couldn't write it. But right. it's incredible to me, he's so talented. Full of heart, expansive in his worldview. He's not uh, punitive in, in dealing with the most unforgivable character in the play. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly forgiving by the end. And that's, I think, what makes the play so, uh, you know, like it's like a, it's like Crimes of the Heart or Augusto Sage County. It's a big, huge family drama, comedy drama. And that's, Matthew is just amazing that way. I'm interested what you hear from the stage. I mean, I don't think I'm outing Lou when I say that. Um, <laughs> oh, that's out Lou. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> not, that, not that way. <laughs> but uh, we, uh, the uncontrollable sobbing that, you know, I, I was happy to, put my arm around him and say, okay, you need to get it together. We were sitting so close that, what are you hearing from there? I mean, they, we as audience members, we go on such a journey as well, and we're in it with you, and we are up and down and up and down, and then the emotions run yeah. very high. What is that Joni Mitchell line? You know, laughing and crying, it's the same release. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so amazing to hear an audience go from that kind of high to another kind of high, which is a, a catharsis, a, a cathartic kind of outpouring of a grief. And again, my partner was discussing this, and this is something that Lou certainly knows. We know 
survivors are still sorting it out. Like, why? Why am I still, why am I, it's 30 years later, my friends are still with me who are gone, and I'm here, and so much time has passed, and how and why? You know, there's an existential question attached to the whole thing, and I think that's part of the great catharsis of Matthew's story and his storytelling. And I also love the, you know, kind of queer connectivity in it, that it's, Matthew Lopez was sitting in Central Park reading Howard's End for his third or fourth time. He'd kind of grown up on the book. And he thought, what if I did a queer retelling of this story? Because Ian Forrester was gay. And he's kind of maybe writing about gay stuff in his books, but it's, except for in Morris, is masked. What if I retold it as an out man and brought Ian Forrester into it from the past as a ghost to help guide? I... You know, I've, I've said this before, I also think the play could be called The Book That Saved My Life. Because so, I, I think it's about storytelling, and that's one of the reasons why you're allowed, you allow yourself to be so moved by it. Your chain is being jerked in the best possible way, because he's just a wonderful storyteller. So you, you surrender to it. You really surrender to it. Yeah, from the second you sit down. Yeah. It is, uh, you're magnificent in it. Oh, that, we, thank you. As an audience member, we fall head over heels with oh. this billionaire Republican. Republican. <laughs> um, you, you make him uh, so human and beautiful, and, we, and that's a real job as an actor. And you especially, you're creating behavior that we, we can't help but love you. It's, it, it's, it it's fun to get to do it. I have, at the end of the day, more than anything else, God knows, Lou, you can say, you know, speak to this. When you're in a play that's that well-written, it's no matter how painful it is to put yourself in the situations that these characters are in, it's fun. It's fun. It's a fun, it was fun to be in the normal heart. People say, God, what was that like? I was like, it was a blast to be in that play. Why? Because the play is so good. And you're just there to, you know, Try your best to serve it. And tell the story. Yeah. Well, let's go back a little bit. So you came, you went to Juilliard, uh-huh. and then you got your start off-Broadway. We uh-huh. like to focus in on off-Broadway. Oh, yeah, Some good. Here. We're going to go right from Broadway to off-Broadway. And your first play, The End of the Day. The End of the Day, right? yeah. I'm so happy you know that. You did your homework. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, I was doing, it was like 91 or 2, 3, something like that. It was January, February, March, April 7th, 1992. 92, yeah. Okay, good. Well done. You played Jonathan Toffler you know, he's, I just and Young Graydon. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You are holding a car. You did that. You didn't learn that. I just want people to know that you're <laughs> reading that. <laughs> if I can't remember, you shouldn't be able to remember. How um, dare you I, call me out. I, I had been doing a lot of uh, uh, wonderful regional theater, and I really wanted to work in New York, and so I just said, I'm going to stay in town for a while and see if I get something. And a year went by, and I was waiting tables and I was struggling to, you know, oh, am I going to leave to go do something on the road for a year? And then Bruce Norris, the great actor and great playwright, was cast in this new John Robin Bates play called The End of the Day at Playwrights Horizons. Robbie Bates had just had a huge success with The Substance Fire. He was the, the man, and he still is. He's such a great, great writer, great friend. Bruce Norris quit the play, and they called me in to audition for it. And, uh, and then a week later, I was in rehearsal and with Roger Reese and the great Nancy Marchand and Gene Smart. And it was, a, it was just a glorious introduction to New York theater. Yeah. You didn't stop working. I mean, for uh, the most part. I mean, did you, did you have to go back to wait tables Of at course any time? I did. Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, when, when you work consistently, that still means you're, even Meryl is like sitting on her ass, you know, like you wait for the jobs to, to come along. But yeah, I mean, again, in 2020 hindsight, it feels, uh, it feels like I worked consistently, but there were, you know, there was, you always think when you're working, you're never going to stop. And when you're not working, you're never going to work again. So there was, you know, all of that. Were you a good waiter? Oh, fantastic. Oh, my God, yes. I knew how to take care of business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a waiter all through Juilliard in the late 80s when the Flatiron District was exploding and there was so much coke and booze. And I, I, oh, God, yes. That I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Fortunately. You know, let's, let's, uh, you know, the hour flies by. And I want to get to a big off-Broadway hit that went to Broadway. And say, you know, when... 
it's time to call in the, the gay army. You are number one that they call in. I mean, the amount of gay epic shows that you have done is, is incredible. So Love, Valor, Compassion right. was number one, your first Broadway show, but yep. it started off at Manhattan Theater Club. Manhattan Theater Club, yeah. Uh, Terrence McNally. Terrence McNally, Joe Mantello, who was an actor who was just turning into a director, convinced Terrence and Lynn to let him direct it, and I had known Joe because he was partners with Robbie Bates, so the world was getting smaller and smaller, and he brought me in for it, and Terrence and he cast me in that, opposite Steven Spinella, who had just come off of Angels with Joe, uh, Nathan Lane, that was my- John Glover. John Glover. sat right here and talked about- oh, right, Yeah, yeah, uh, Glover, just amazing in it. Magnificent. And, and you know, I think Matthew, to go back to Matthew Lopez, I think Matthew's spiritual father in this business is Terrence McNally. People have compared um, the inheritance to Angels in America simply because of its framework. And Tony is, of course, you know, that, that is one of the great masterworks of the American theater. But uh, Matthew and Terrence are spiritual, spiritually connected much I more than- I see that. I mean, yeah. I, and I, I see it and you hear it in the rhythms and you hear it and you, you know, he kills you with a comedic line yeah. and then you're yeah, crying your hysterically. Heart. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go. Um, well, I, you know, I, I, because Lou Liberatore is in the house, we keep mentioning him, and, and you know, Lou know. was a real, hey, Lou. <laughs> Lou was a real hero of mine, um, because, and, and I think, and, and, and I could probably speak to this better than I could, you know, I didn't do these plays because I was gay, or beca but I, I also did do them because I was attracted to them because they spoke to me, but you know, at the time, it was a concern, you know? And Lou, how many years before that was burned this, and as is, that was a good 10 years before. You, we went where the work was, and you worried about it. You had agents who would say to you, are you sure you wanna do this? Because they could think of you this way. And, and at the end of the day, <laughs> speak of play, at the end of the day, you wanted to be in the room where it happened. And the room where it happened was where Marshall Mason was, and where, where Lanford Wilson was, and where Terrence McNally was. I'm being a little elliptical here, but you know, when you say this gay, and I've, I've done these things over, I just went where the plays were, and I, I came out because I wanted to be where the cool kids were. And those guys were Terrence, and Joe, and Tony, and, and I will just also say that I feel like the reason why the inheritance was a gift, because it was the first time where I was like, wow, this is, I'm done thinking about my career. And is it a gay part? Is it a straight part? And I spent a lot of time thinking about that because you had to in the 80s and 90s. It was a concern. And I was lucky enough to say, fuck it. But this was one of the first times where I was like, this is for me. You know, this is a, this is a gift for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So the fact that I've done these plays that are, have this kind of benchmark gay kind of thing attached to them, it's only because I was in the right place at the right time. And that's where the work was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. To do. Yeah, there's I mean, no such thing as strategy. I mean, I think the minute you start getting strategic about your career, I mean, maybe if you are Meryl, you can be strategic. Yeah. But I, don't, I think you go, you, you, no matter who you are, you go where the great work is if you're lucky. What I remember most about Love, Valor, Compassion, I, I saw it many, many times. Mm. And I, was, I was in grad school and went to Manhattan Theater not, Club not really knowing what I was going to see. <laughs> and again, it was one of those theater moments as it was with As Is and, and Burn This where you see as a gay man for the first time in your life a representation of, you know, mirrors what you see on stage. And I remember not being able to, hysterically funny, but heartbreaking. Yeah. I remember not being able to leave my seat yeah. from what I had just seen. It is something I'll remember for the rest of my yeah. life. What was working on a new play? Um, a, a new play that was that. the gayest thing you ever right. read. So we all were so sure, just like, I, I, I don't know if I was sure that this would not go past the Young Vic. I only was worried about it, the fact that it was such a long mm -hmm. thing. And it's still a big challenge for these producers. I mean, these producers are incredibly intrepid and brave to, and I remember 25 years ago when I did Love, Valor on Broadway, I was like, oh, plays like this, well, they won't be doing these things, you know, 20 years from now. It'll all be, you know, musicals. And 
look at this six hour long play. I remember us thinking there's no way it won't even make it through its run at MTC. These men's lives, and they were all gay men on stage. There were no straight characters, there were no women, there were no, it was just gay, gay, gay. So it won't last for, but the little, if I may say, the little old ladies who were the subscribers at MTC, not to, you know, they were d dealing with their own mortality because you know, there was an old crowd. And also all their, you know, they all had gay sons. So they fell in love with this play. Like it took us so completely by surprise. And the fact that it moved to Broadway was just this huge it stunned us all. We had no idea it would have such a popular appeal. Again, maybe underestimating Terence's expansive, comic, dramatic spirit. And that was what was political about it, too, is that it was a, such an unpolitical play, unlike Tony's yeah. masterwork, you know. It was a big, four-handkerchief, tear-jerking, three-act comedy. Yeah, and it wasn't just for the gay, gay, gays. Oh, I mean, God, I think no. It, it was, was yeah. all, I mean... I remember my mother seeing it and, you know, my mom. a lot of, lot of nudity. Oh, I was naked. My mother came from yeah, I remember. Texas. Yeah. 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 Oh. <laughs> Thank God those days are over. <laughs> yeah. You're still young, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a lot of, a lot of shows ahead yeah. of you. We became so intimate with each other. That cast was probably half gay, half straight. That was another thing that doesn't really happen anymore. Like Barbara Streisand came, back, came to see it and came back to Nathan's dressing room and the first question she asked was, tell me who's gay and who's straight. That was back when you could sort of ask that question and get away with it. She was dying to know. But we became so intimate. You know, we would just be like, hey, can you look at my penis? I don't feel like it's looking like it's best today. Yeah, you know, I think you probably should take a warm shower. I mean, we were like, we were, we were really, we were, we, we got very, very close. Well, you group. have to be. I mean, you're walking yeah. around naked. I mean, yeah. you are exposing, I mean, to an enormous, the Walter Kerr is an enormous theater. Yes, <laughs> I like that word. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. It really was. It was. Those so were, it was, was a very, um, it was a great yeah, time. It's a magnificent And then we went off and did a movie of it. Yeah. Yeah, Joe directed a movie of it. Nathan wasn't able to do it, but Jason Alexander came in and was brilliant in the movie. And yeah, so it was just wonderful. That, do you remember that point in your career when you, you, you had some success off Broadway and then you did Love, Valor, and then bam, they said, we're moving to Broadway. Yeah. I mean, as an artist, as an actor, what, do you remember what that feeling was of kind of they let you know and you, you know, skipped home? I mean, was it, was it do you remember what that feeling is, the the moment that things kind of clicked in for you? Yeah, um, no, I, no, I don't. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I try my best to be good at being in the moment on stage, but I get freaked out at curtain calls. I did a revival of The Crucible on Broadway with Liam Neeson and Laura Linney many years ago, and Laura and I were classmates at Juilliard and are great, great friends, and she, of course, is one of our truly great actresses. And uh, we were on stage at the curtain call of opening night for The Crucible, and Arthur Miller escorted on stage, and you know, the place just went crazy. And, uh, and Laura turned to me, because we were standing right next to you, she's like, are you present for this? Are you here right now? And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm too. And she knew, you know, it's like, when it's happening, especially when a success, a runaway success like that happens with Love, Valor, you're, you, you keep having to pinch yourself, you know, because they just don't happen that often, you know? You, 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 try, to, you try to stay on the ride, and and stay focused on what's important, which is the work. So what, ha I mean, uh, I'm just interested, like what happened, like a curtain call comes, you kind of just come out and then like, and yeah, I'm better the side. I, yeah, I'm better than I used to be. To I try take, to drink it in, in now, yeah. And I, now I get to stand next to Lois Smith, who's in our cast, who's, uh, yeah, circle rep number, one of the great icons of the American theater and film. 89 years old and is like, knows her lines better than I do. I can't believe that, it. That yeah, woman she, has a monologue at the end of The Inheritance. Yeah. I, uh, it's really, it's really, she's a treasure. And now I stand next to her and she's constantly pinching me during the curtain call. So <laughs> I, get, I get placed next to really good people <laughs> in curtain calls. I'm lucky that way. I remember I, I heard a story or read a story about uh, when Cheetah Rivera was doing Nine. I can't remember, the, maybe it was Laura Benanti or whatever. And Laura would come out and take her bow. And, and Cheetah pulled her aside and said, don't ever do that again. And she said, I guess I, I, I'm maybe fabricating or- I love this. But I didn't make it up. But so she taught Laura to come out and take in the audience and count one, two, 
Wow. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. I'm calling Cheetah. I want to get that I think lesson. You, should, you yeah. should go to five, though. Yeah. Yeah. I, said, no, I think Cheetah goes to five. I'm going to go to three. She's got every right to go to yeah, five. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so you go to Broadway, and I mean, you have, but you go back and forth between, I mean, with all your TV and film, I and mean, we could be here for hours and oh talk boy, about. Oh, could we? And yeah, we could. And <laughs> incre- you got a, quite a career. Here, oh sir. boy, I mean, oh boy. But you go back between, you keep coming back off Broadway, which is incredible. But I'm going to get to that in one minute. I want to talk about The Normal Heart. Mm-hmm. And I really want to talk about it because not only is it a big gay, gay, gay play, uh-huh. but it is so iconic, especially yeah. here in New York, written yeah. by Larry Kramer, started off-Broadway, yeah. never went to Broadway until your uh, production, until production in, two, in yeah. 2011. Did you do it, Lou? No. Yeah, you did, okay. I mean, I, I just didn't know whether you were in it at some point, yeah, okay. How did that come to you, and? That was amazing. I mean, Joe Mantello, again, God, I owe him so much. Such a great inspiration, director, mentor, and friend. They were going to do a one-night-only benefit for Broadway Cares. I'm going to do it, and Joel Gray's going to direct it, and you should play Felix. And Felix is usually played by a much younger, much better-looking guy than me. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, we would have fun doing this. And it's a really terrific love story, heartbreaking love story at the center of the play. Just come and do it. And I was like, oh, my God, I'd be thrilled to. They got a really amazing group of people for that reading. And it was such a success, that thing. And, uh, and the play was speaking to us in a way that with some distance, it just goes, it was sort of like what's going on with Matthew's play. There was this feeling of like, I can go back there and unlock some of that pain. They decided to do a lim- very limited run on Broadway. And it was going to be like, I guess like maybe like the vagina monologues where we were at, we were at music stands with scripts. And we only had about 12 days of rehearsal and two days of text. In the second and third day of rehearsal, people just started putting their scripts down. This was Ellen Barkin and Jim Parsons and Lee Pace and Patrick Breen. I'm forgetting people. Uh, Joe, of course, playing Ned. And it just started to catch fire because that's what the play is. The play is about catching fire. Mm. And we, we learned it. Joe kept saying, I'm not going on stage without my script. I'm not going on stage. I know what jo- George Wolf had taken over the reins of directing at this point because Joel Gray was in a show. George took it over, George is a genius, just a brilliant, brilliant man, and built a safe space for us. We learned it, we teched it for two days, and then suddenly we were in this production of The Normal Heart, and I was shooting a TV show called The Big C at the time, and I was having my, you know, um, Elaine Stritch moment of, you know her thing where she was like, I was in New Haven, I was in Thingy, oh, I was yeah, in yeah. I was in Stanford mm-hmm. shooting The Big C, I would jump on a train and get to the theater, get to Grand Central by 7.43 and be on stage by 8.07. That only happened a couple of times, but as time goes by, I'm like, I did it five times a week now. <laughs> I only did it a couple of times. Um, but it was, it was and they, they, they hired an alternate person to play the part because they just didn't think I was going to be there that much. But at the time, it wasn't that big of a deal because it was just going to be like a reading. So that was a really crazy confluence of events and... I remember Mike Nichols ran into Joe deep into our run, and he said, has it started to fall apart a little bit yet? And Joe said, yeah, we're kind of like losing our shit a little. And Mike said, that's the problem with not rehearsing. He said, you know, sometimes you, if you rehearse for something for two weeks, you open it and it feels so alive and electric, but it's as the run goes on that you realize you need four weeks of rehearsal to build foundations that you later need to lean on. But we didn't, that wasn't that long of a run, so it lasted blissfully the amount of time it should have. It was incredible. How involved was Larry Kramer? And Larry Kramer is a playwright, and for our listeners that don't know The Normal Heart, you should read it. There's a a great movie now, too. Oh, yes, Um, wonderful. uh, The Mark Ruffalo. Yep, Mark, Um, and Joe was in it. Yes, and um, it's about the beginning of the um, AIDS epidemic and this guy and his cohorts, how they start to fight it, how yeah. ACT UP started, uh, yeah, how exactly. gay men's health crisis started. So was Larry involved? Was he yeah. in the room? Yeah, it's a Cassandra, you know, it's the Cassandra cry, that play. I mean, that's why so many young people loved our production, because it's a, that play is, on paper, is about the AIDS epidemic in the beginning of it. What it really is about is about being disenfranchised, about living in a society that tells you you don't 
count. Your voice cannot be heard. And somebody, this character, Larry Kramer, just builds bigger and bigger and bigger soapboxes to get on, finally is on top of a mountain by himself, screaming and crying bloody murder, um, because that's what he believed and that's what was happening to his community. Yes, Larry was there. (laughs) Oh God, I hope Larry doesn't hear this. But I think George purposefully put us on the fifth or sixth floor of of 890 Broadway, the studio's there, because Larry doesn't like to get on elevators. (laughs) And he didn't want want Larry in rehearsal. Uh, Larry was incredibly supportive. And then when we were in our run, Larry, who was in his late 70s at this point, and had not been in great shape, a lot of his adult life because of his medical issues mm-hmm. um, was outside every night with flyers. Yeah, that's uh, what I was not say. about the play, about the fight, about how do we reach the end of this epidemic and here's what you can do. And it was, man, his, he walks the walk, he talks the talk. He, he Still, is, it's yeah. Unbe- it's unbelievable. No matter what health issues he has, it, that he, when I went to see the show, he was passing out these flyers yeah. that you know, had what you can do yeah. to make your voice louder. Exactly, and it wasn't that wasn't to sell tickets. It wasn't to promote the and show. And I was like, uh, Larry Kramer, thank, yeah, thank you. Isn't I that mean, amazing? I was, I was, yeah, you know, we couldn't in believe his overalls. That. It, it was, yeah. it was every night, incredible. Every night, yeah, that was that was really something. And that was he was talking earlier about how much fun it is to be in a play that can be profoundly tragic, but that is where you really exercise your right to drink after a show and your, your right to gallows humor. You know, we had to, we, the way we kept the, our levity backstage, because that was another audience where you could, the, the grief was palpable. The, the, the display of grief was really- You could feel yeah, it. Yeah, you could really feel it. So you won a Tony Award. I did. For yeah. the, that performance. Oh, thank you. I know everybody asks, where do you keep your Tony? And then uh, you have a little story about it because of your partner. Yeah, so I, my partner writes Modern Family and he's won uh, several Emmys, but I always say it takes about 10 Emmys to make a Tony, right, Lou? <laughs> yeah, you have to at least win 10, win 10 of those things. And he has, you know, an Emmy is like a thing that you would see on Dateline NBC that her husband, he, she murdered her husband right. by hitting him with an Emmy. The Emmy They're, could beat up the Tony, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah a, little bit. a Tony is a small yeah, thing. Yeah. Very, very big in you know uh, size, uh, and he, I, my Tony is sitting next to one of his Emmys, and I'm always complaining about it. And he wrote an episode of Modern Family where Mitch and Cam have competing like fishing trophies or something, and one is saying mine's bigger than yours, and yeah. So there, you have to be very careful what you say around a partner who writes a television comedy because your worst, worst <laughs> tragedy can become next week's episode of Modern Family. Be Cam and, and Mitch. It'd be played for laughs. Or any, I've seen shit that I've said come out of Sophia Vergara's mouth. Like, yeah, <laughs> I said that, yeah. Yeah, so you have to be careful. I have a couple questions. So you are about to embark on a, your directorial debut. Yeah. Broadway, Broadway, Broadway director. Broadway. Thank God I've directed one other thing right. before. Well, I mean, uh, that's quite yeah. a step. Or yeah, you, it is. It's a big um, step. You are doing uh, Neil Simon's Plaza Suite. Yes. Uh, you've cast two very unknowns. Yeah, yeah, which, okay. um, yeah. I did a lot of auditions. I really <laughs> did the yeah. Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 You yeah. got the joke, thanks. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, <laughs> you are reviving this 1968 play, which yeah. is. Uh, an iconic play. A gem, uh, as you said. Just yeah. the, one of the most magnificent Neil Simon plays, I think. Yeah. Just yeah. a just perfect yeah. three-act play. Yeah. And they play six roles. Six p- different six parts, yeah. Six meaty roles. Yeah. How, yeah. how'd you get this? How did this come to you? I mean, I know you're very friendly with both of them, yeah. so. Yeah, I know that's a great thing about them playing six different parts is if you don't know or care about Neil Simon, you get to come and see Sarah Jessica Parker change clothes three times, which people <laughs> like doing that. Um, I was kind of spearheading a reading series at Symphony Space, one of my favorite venerable New York mm-hmm. institutions in a city where so many things like that seem to be vanishing. Symphony Space still stands. I love that place. And they asked me to kind of do a Monday night reading series thing. And my first thought was, oh, I should get Sarah and Matthew to see if they want to do something. We thought about doing some stuff. We were going to do, um, we were going to read the screenplay of A New Leaf, the great Elaine May movie with May and Mathau that she wrote. The screenplay you could not find. 
And so we thought, you know what? Let's read some Neil Simon plays. We read Prisoner of Second Avenue. We loved that. And then one of us, and I don't remember who, reread Plaza Suite. And they were like, read it. We all three read it. And we were like, holy shit, this is a play, a comedy, a painful comedy about marriage, about long relationships, about and, and the madness that, that comes with being with the same person for many years. We thought, what an amazing thing for them to read together. They read it. It was gangbusters. They were extraordinary together, and they delighted in each other's company. Key. Let's hope that sticks around. And we went out to dinner two nights later, and they said, we want to do this. Do you, we, they were foolish enough to say they wanted to do it. They were foolish enough to say, do you want to direct it? And I said, yes, I do, in very short order, quick order, some producers who saw the opportunity came on board. And that happened right around the same time I was getting on board to do The Inheritance. So I said to the producers, look, there might be a conflict. And they're like, we'll make it work. And they are. I'm taking a leave of absence from The Inheritance and jumping in with them into this. And we go into rehearsal in January, go to Boston and play The Colonial for five weeks in February, come to New York in March and open in April at the Hudson Theater. To reread Neil Simon, we, have, we haven't heard Neil Simon in so long, and you read his play, this play especially, and you're reminded of what made you want to be an actor. Because Neil was one of those writers, we've talked about this, like, you know, when I was in high school, I mean, I read Glass Menagerie, and I wanted to be Tom, and I probably read Long Days, but, you know, it was harder to play a grown-up in an O'Neill play than it was to play a grown-up in a Neil Simon play. Neil Simon made you feel like you could be a witty and urbane New York grown-up, which is everything you wanted to be when you lived in Plano, Texas. And so it, reading his plays, I was reminded of that brilliant comic voice, that architecture of comedy and how nobody came near it. And also what I was surprised by was how deep the play is. It really has great depth and great pain in it, and that's what makes it so funny. It's a, it's a heartbreaking play as well. It is, I think, especially the first, it's three acts, mm. and I think the first one is, what well, we talked about it is, I think, a perfect yeah, yeah. one-act play. And, and it I was mean, two, it, 20 years before he wrote the Brighton Beach Broadway Bound, where he started going deep into his family and that pain, he wrote a play that, was touching that kind of depth. This, the first play in the suite is not like a ha-ha funny play. It's a play about an, the end of a marriage and how heartbreaking it is. Yeah, yeah. But it's, hysterically funny. Yeah, also very, very funny. I mean, it, it's touch big wood. big shoes to, what are you looking for? Yeah, I'm th- t- looking for wood to touch. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah, because yes, it is. It's, it's, and, and they're playing parts that were iconically played by Maureen Stapleton and George C. Scott. And you know, Sarah and Matthew are creatures of the theater and creatures of theater history. And it was their idea to be like, we want to do it the old fashioned way. We want to go out of town first and play an old theater before we come to New York. And that's good for me too. Which is the way they used to do it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. uh, I mean, Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin, you know, on the road and, um, and it's got that sensibility to it. And I've got a design team, I mean, the three people I wanted, Jane Greenwood on costumes, John Lee Beatty on set, and Brian McDevitt on lights. So I am surrounded by people who I can turn to and go, what do I do now? <laughs> What's next? <laughs> who will help me? And it's, it's a, I want it to feel, I mean, my inspirations are what um, Santa Lacosto and of course Jerry Zaks did with Hello Dolly, and, and what Mike Nichols did with uh, Death of a Salesman. It, it felt so old fashioned that it felt brand new. You know, it had kind of a both charges of energy in it. And I, I want it to feel that way. I'm not doing a revisionist history on Neil Simon. I'm not updating. It is that time and place. And it'll be interesting to see what the world makes of Neil now. But I think we could all use a little Neil Simon. Are you nervous? Oh, God, yes. But weirdly enough, I'm much more excited. I'm so excited by the fact that I don't have to be in it, that I get to eat. If I want Mexican food before the show, I can go have, and I love Tex-Mex, so um, I don't have to have chicken broth, you know? Yeah, of course, of course. You know, you, terror is part of it. That's part of, you know, you have to have that. If you weren't scared, you'd be worried. Absolutely, absolutely. I think we're all like, oh my God, look what we're about to to do, you know, and... uh, and I think you go into, and I also am I'm weirdly fairly calm about being so new to this part of it. I mean, listen, I've worked with 
Stephen Daldry, Joe Mantello, Sam Mendes, Phyllida Lloyd, Richard Eyre. You know, I've worked with such George Wolfe. I've stolen from the best as far as what I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, going into. But I think you go into any job, whether it's a brand new thing or something you're used to doing, acting, with terror and curiosity. And then you find out what the play is about as you do it. Mm -hmm. So it will be really exciting to get into a room with those guys. I think we're all really excited to see that. <laughs> oh, get your tickets I'm now. I'm so, so excited. <laughs> yeah, I um, can't wait for you to see it, Eric. I'm, we're both big Neil Simon fans, so. The biggest. Yeah. I feel like a, a Neil Simon nerd. I mean, yeah. I just filled my days of, of junior high and high school and college yeah. just, just wanting to be inside that play. Yeah, yeah. And you need actors like Sarah Jessica and Matthew because at least I haven't seen Sarah do it, but I'm, I'm, she's a wonderful actor. Oh, yeah. So, but Matthew's vernacular and his, he's been, he was born to yeah. play Neil yeah, Simon. Yeah, it's in his DNA. It is in his blood and yeah. his DNA. He yeah. is the rhythms and is just perfect. Yeah, yeah it's too perfect. It's almost like his persona is something that was created by Neil Simon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, he credits Neil, of course, with giving him his career. Brighton Beach Memoirs and Max Dugan Returns were his first two jobs, both written by Neil. I know, unbelievable. Uh, yeah. I remember seeing uh, Matthew in that like it was yesterday. I mean, it was just one of those performances where you couldn't believe it. It was so sui generis. It was like you'd never seen a thing like that it on was, stage It was before. completely new. Yeah. And he was completely 18, new. 19. And yeah. the amazing thing to me about Simon is that he was able to move with the times. I mean, he went from the mid-60s with, with this and with the odd couple to Gingerbread Lady yeah. to, to the trio um, Biloxi Blues and yeah. Bright Beach, Beach Memoirs Broadway and then Broadway Bound. Bound. And he changed with, yeah. he just he did. kept evolving he grew. and be getting better and better than yeah. Lost in Yonkers. Yeah, yeah, he kept growing as an artist. And I don't really think he's given that kind of credit because his plays were comedies. Right. You know, but he, there was remarkable growth and depth. The other thing, speaking of the great directors I've worked with, and I hope there's Neil on this shoulder and on the other shoulder is Mike Nichols because in the printed script of the play, all of Mike's stage directions are in the script. So when in doubt, I can just look and say, uh, why don't you cross to the mantle um, and then pick up the, yeah, I mean, I plan Try on. Try this, yeah. yeah. And, and, and of this course, might work. yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm you know, working with two people who revere Mike as much as I did and knew him and worked with him and had, and so they plan on having him and his spirit in the room. I think Mike would love this idea. I hope, myself included, but I think Mike would love the idea of Sarah and Matthew doing this play. We are, I'm, I could sit and talk with you. For oh, a I'm so, you yeah, I know. I'm I gonna, hope um, uh, we have time for a real quick question or two. Uh, otherwise, I will suck up all the time with this incredible artist. It's What's your the, name? Uh, Shaul. Hi, how are you? From the viewer's perspective, it felt as though there were countless aspects of the inheritance, whether it was the the literal inheritance of the house or the figurative inheritance of the gay experience, the gay psyche, storytelling of our history. I'm curious from the actor's perspective if there was, if you had a particular theme that you enjoyed conveying or tried to convey that you related to or that felt most important to you to convey. God, that's a good question. I mean, I think, weirdly enough, the thing I enjoy the most about conveying is, is this character's paralysis, this character's trauma, which is um, kind of not a survivor's guilt because Henry completely disassociated himself from his community. He did, he did come out of the closet, he did leave his wife, and he did partner up and stayed partnered up for 36 years in a deeply compromised way. But I think getting to play somebody from that time who did not survive it in a way that was noble. And I think people who are flawed are much more interesting to play than people who are, you know, good. And so the very thing that troubles me the most about Henry is the thing I, I love the most that Matthew kind of articulated in this, that we didn't all survive it, you know, intact. Great question. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you, really great question. I got great. another question for you. Okay. Um, I thought you were gonna, do what? I opened the floor. I'm just kidding. Oh, no, no, no. I, we are running out of time. Okay. And, and we have, uh, unless someone has another question. Are we good? 
You intimidate. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> Should I take my clothes off? I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. That was a joke. You threw me off. Oh, Vicky. Eric. I'm Eric, back to Love, Valor, Compassion. No, yeah. 25 years ago. I know, I was sitting second, I haven't, there's second a kid, in a row again. What? There's a kid in our play, a kid, a brilliant 24-year-old actor, Sam Levine, who plays two parts. And he, I think he's the only person in the play who takes his clothes off. I've never seen it. I've never gone near the stage. I've never gone near the monitor. I have such, I'm not, and I, I, you may, I lose laughing because he's like, yeah, right. I swear <laughs> on everything. I, I have such shyness about what it takes to overcome your shyness that I'm like, I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna look at that. I don't ever watch the play either. I think it's weird to watch a play that you're in. And you can with this play because yeah. you know, there's four hours of it that you're not in. I kind of, I kind of keep a, a safe. What do you do? I'm in my dressing room listening to it. Oh, you are? And it's so okay. well written that it's lovely to listen to as a radio play. But I come out and I'm like, Sometimes I'll see something in tech and I'll be like, wait a minute, there's a thing there? And the kids in the play are like, you've been in this play for two years and you never knew that there was a, so yeah, I stay blissfully ignorant. Why do you keep coming back to Off-Broadway? I mean, you go back yeah. and forth all the time. You did that play at Lincoln Center. Yeah, Dada Wolf, Papa Hot, the Peter which Parnell play, yeah. yeah. Why do you keep Peter. coming back here? I mean, I know you got your start here and this is where you got your feet wet, but what is it about Off-Broadway that keeps it coming back? It's what I, it's more than Broadway. It's when I saw plays at Circle Rep. I mean, I saw some crazy plays at Circle Rep in on Seventh Avenue. I can't walk by. I till the, to this day I walk past that place, which is now some crazy new restaurant. And remember the Buffalo Roadhouse was right down the block, and you know, it's the plays I wanted to be in were those plays. I wanted to be in Fool for Love. You know, I wanted to <laughs> yeah, be in a Lanford Wilson play, Angels Fall. Um, I wanted to be in one of those plays. And um, Broadway wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't quite as splashy and flashy. And if a play like As Is or Burn This made it to Broadway, Burn This was a much more of a commercial. Was Malkovich a star by then, a movie star? No. Um, getting there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's just where I, the writers I wanted to work with and the, and the things I wanted to be in were there. And they, they, they still are. No matter how the inheritance would have come over, if they had decided to do it off-Broadway, I would have done it here, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, I, I, it's always where the interesting stuff is. And you know, to this day, I've never worked at the public. I mean, I was a spear carrier in the park. Mm. I would love to do a play at the public theater. I'd love to be at the Newman. I'd love to do a play at this theater. I've seen so many amazing things here. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just all about where the great writer is. And you want to be in that, you want to be in his or her play. Well, I thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that's our show. Thanks for listening to Live at the Lortel, brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Foundation. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer Eric Ostro, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart, and pressed by Chris Kanarik. The show's production manager is Zebulon Brown, house manager is Charles Shipman, box office manager is Daigoro Hirahata. Social media is Mia Radia. Live at the Lortel is recorded the Lucille Lortel Theater in New York City by Bryant Falk and Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz and Rebecca Kriegler. <laughs>